This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmeyer, and welcome to episode 35 of Keep the Faith, my weekly podcast in which we explore contemporary issues through the prism of Jewish law and tradition. As I noted in closing the pre-Thanksgiving episode, 3 plus 5 equals 8, and 8 is what we're going to be discussing this week, specifically the 8-day festival that begins at sundown next Thursday. And so, the topic for this week is the Hanukkah conundrums. The truth is, Hanukkah is a problematic festival in a number of ways. We should celebrate it. There's good reason for doing so. But we should celebrate it for the right reasons. We'll get to those, but first we'll deal with those problems, those Hanukkah conundrums. The biggest problem with Hanukkah, of course, is what it's not or more accurately, what it's not supposed to be. Hanukkah is not a Jewish version of Christmas, and it shouldn't be observed as such. To begin with, Christmas is one of Christianity's two major observances, Easter being the other one. Hanukkah, on the other hand, is low man on the Jewish festival observance pole. It's an oh-so-minor festival in Judaism. On a scale of 1 to 10 on the list of our festivals, Hanukkah probably should be ranked all the way at the bottom as a 1. Yet, it's become more important than some of our major festivals. Hanukkah may even top Pesach, Passover, on the popularity scale. Most Jews observe Hanukkah for the entire eight days, whereas only the Seder on the first night of Pesach outstrips it as an observance. Hanukkah also has become a very expensive eight days, as parents and grandparents outdo themselves to fulfill children's wish lists of dream gifts. We used to just give Hanukkah gelt, Hanukkah money, to children for them to give to their teachers. In other words, it was a way of teaching children the mitzvah of tzedakah, of giving charity. That was back in the 17th century. For most of the early part of the 20th, it meant giving children a few pennies so that they could play the dreidel game. Good luck trying to get away with that today. What is it about Hanukkah that makes it so popular a Jewish holiday? One possible reason is timing. Hanukkah falls out in the Jewish month of Kislev, and Kislev falls out on the secular calendar in mid to late November and runs into December. In other words, Hanukkah occurs when the nights are the longest, meaning during the period leading up to the winter solstice. This year, the last candle of Hanukkah will be lit at sundown on December 17th, which is just four days short of the winter solstice. A festival of lights is a perfect counter to days of darkness, which is why winter solstice festivals were commonplace in the ancient world. In ancient Greece, for example, this was the time for a festival to Dionysus, the so-called deity Greeks believed ruled over all things wine-related. I refer to pagan deities as no-gods, by the way. The Romans, for their part, marked December 25th as the birthday of the sun. According to an early medieval Christian writer who went by the nom de plume Scriptor Cirrus, that Roman observance was co-opted by early Christian leaders in the 4th century who turned it into Christmas. 
Here's what he wrote. Quote, It was a custom of the pagans to celebrate on the same 25 December, the birthday of the sun, at which they kindled lights in token of festivity. In these solemnities and revelries, the Christians also took part, unquote. For that reason, Scriptosiris wrote, early Christian leaders chose that date for their nativity festival. Neither the winter solstice nor its pagan observances played any role in choosing when Hanukkah was to begin. The start of the festival was based on a historical fact, the rededication of the temple on the 25th of Kislev in the year 3586, following the temporary defeat of the Seleucid army. The actual defeat took another 25 years to accomplish. The date coincided with the third anniversary of the day the Seleucid emperor, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, ordered the temple altar to be defiled. The solstice, then, was not the reason for Hanukkah. But the festival's eventual emphasis on lights may be one reason Hanukkah became an annual event. This brings us to the second possible reason for Hanukkah's popularity, light as symbol. Hanukkah may have become popular because it came to celebrate the victory of a Jewish army over an oppressive foreign occupier. In the darkest of days of the year, Jews had cause to celebrate their emergence from yet another dark period in their history. In the even darker days of our history since then, Hanukkah gave us the hope of reaching that light at the end of the oppressive tunnels we all too often found ourselves in. Light thus enters the observance of Hanukkah, but only in a figurative sense, not an actual one. Here's what the Jewish historian Josephus had to say in his Antiquities of the Jews about the victorious Judeans and their winter festival. Quote, Truly, they were so very joyful at the revival of their customs and having unexpectedly regained their right to worship after so long a time that they made it a law for their posterity that they should keep a festival celebrating the restoration of the temple service for eight days. And from then until now, we celebrate this festival, which we call Lights. I believe the reason is that this freedom, to once again worship as we please, was achieved beyond our hopes, and that is why this festival is so named." Josephus didn't call the festival Hanukkah. He called it Lights. He probably wouldn't have known what Hanukkah even meant. Few people in his day would have recognized that name. The festival's name back then was Lights, or Urim in Hebrew. We still refer to Hanukkah as Lights, by the way. One of the traditional greetings on Hanukkah is Chag Urim Sameach, meaning a happy festival of lights. Strangely, in English, Hanukkah is almost always called the Festival of Lights. Virtually no one calls it dedication, which is what Hanukkah actually means. That the word light as the festival's name was originally meant figuratively may also be seen in the fact that neither Josephus nor anyone before him mentions the actual lighting of anything as part of the observance, much less adding one additional light for each of the eight days. The earliest mention of actual lights come in rabbinic literature post-Josephus. 
Josephus, in using the words, I believe, also suggests that in his day, late in the first century of the Common Era, no one remembered why the festival was even called lights. The reason apparently had been forgotten by then. It remains forgotten today. This is yet another possible indication that actual lights were not originally involved, at least not the way they're involved today. Think about it. Hanukkah supposedly celebrates the miracle of a single vial of consecrated oil that lit the temple's seven-branched menorah for eight full days. Enough oil for one day lasted for eight days. So extraordinary an event wouldn't have gone unremarked in contemporaneous texts, yet no mention of this miracle of the oil is found anywhere. Hanukkah didn't come about because of any actual lights. It began as a festival honoring the rededication of the altar, Hanukkah HaMizbeach, or more accurately, the dedication of the new altar that was built to replace the one defiled by the Seleucids three years earlier. That Hanukkah seeks to emulate the popular culture rather than stick to its religious roots isn't a surprise, but that's only because Hanukkah has no religious roots. You heard that right, and we'll get to that in a moment. That Hanukkah exists at all testifies to its popularity with the people and to the ability of our sages of blessed memory to make the best of a bad situation. To many of our sages, especially the earliest ones, anything that celebrated the Hasmoneans as heroes probably was very likely considered to be a bad situation. The festival is not mentioned anywhere in the Tanakh, in the Bible, even though there were at least two books available for inclusion in it before the Bible was finally canonized. The two books are 1st and 2nd Maccabees. There's not even a debate recorded in the Talmud over whether to include either or both books, as there was, say, for the Song of Songs or the Book of Esther, on which the Purim festival is based. There's also virtually nothing about the festival in the Mishnah, which is primarily the product of our earliest sages, the ones who lived in the first and second centuries of the Common Era. The four references that do exist in the Mishnah are in passing, and they only exist as parts of lists that include other observances. Considering that the Mishnah, in its present form, was not edited until around the year 200, by which time Hanukkah was an established minor festival, complete with lighting those Hanukkah lights, the paucity of references to it only highlights its problematic origin. After the Mishnah comes the Gemara, and together they make up the Talmud. There are two versions of the Talmud, the Babylonian and the Jerusalem Talmud. The Talmud is essentially a product of sages from the year 200 to the year 600. Both versions have more to say about Hanukkah than the Mishnah did, but little of what is said in either one goes beyond either describing its rituals or praising some Hasmoneans and vilifying others. Contrast this to Purim, which has its own biblical book, the Book of Esther, and its own Talmudic tractate, Megillah, or scroll in English. The sages also went to considerable lengths to increase the stature of Purim's male hero, Mordechai, creating legends that made him one of the great religious leaders of his day and also one of its greatest scholars. The sages made no similar effort to add luster to any of the Hasmoneans. For the record, Judah Maccabee was a Hasmonean. His family is considered Hasmonean. 
There's a critical difference between Hanukkah and Purim that accounts for Purim's treatment by the sages. While the book of Esther never mentions God, God's presence is written all over the story. Critical events occur at precisely the right moments, and the final victory over Haman is brought about through fasting and prayer. There's nothing comparable in the Hanukkah story. Victory is achieved on the battlefield and without benefit of fasting or miracles or fortuitous turn of events or even prayer. That's another problem with Hanukkah. The festival celebrates a military victory. That's a very Hellenistic way of doing things, but it's also a decidedly un-Jewish way. That's part of what I meant in saying that Hanukkah has no religious roots. A military victory means people on both sides died. Since all humans are God's children, the fact that our joy comes from the shedding of the blood of someone else, enemy though that person may be, isn't considered something to celebrate. We can see how our sages felt about that in a Midrash about Moses splitting the Red Sea. The Midrash tells us that the angels in heaven were singing and dancing as the Egyptian soldiers who were chasing the Israelites were now drowning in the sea. God tells the angels to stop partying. Says God, my children are dying and you are celebrating. We don't celebrate the death of anyone, not for one day and certainly not for eight days. There's also the fact that the victory was only a partial one at best. As I mentioned earlier, it would be another 25 years until Damascus finally conceded defeat. Even that victory, however, was short-lived because the Hasmoneans soon made pacts with the Romans and one of their number eventually conspired with Rome to yet again deny Judea its independence, this time with disastrous results that would take two millennia to rectify. That the first Hanukkah focused on the rededication of the temple doesn't change the fact that it was a celebration of a military victory. The eight-day celebration was coincidental. Because the Seleucids had banned all religious observances, the Hasmoneans decided to include elements of the unobserved festival nearest in time that wasn't allowed to be celebrated, meaning Sukkot. That Sukkot effectively lasts for eight days was fortuitous because that was also the length of previous dedications of sacred space. The first took place a year after the Exodus, when there was an eight-day dedication of the portable tabernacle, the Mishkan. King Solomon used that as the model for dedicating the first temple, and Ezra the scribe did the same for the rebuilt second one. Aside from the military aspects of Hanukkah, the sages probably also had problems with the Hasmoneans themselves. One of their number especially was held in contempt by the sages, and deservedly so. His name was Alexander Yanai. Because of his disdain for a Sukkot ritual that was popular with the people, a huge throng of worshippers at the temple in the year 95 pelted him with their etrogim, with the citrons that they held in their hands. In response, Alexander Yanai reportedly ordered his private mercenary guard to attack the worshippers, killing 6,000 people, on the temple grounds no less. That horror eventually led to a six-year civil war in which another 50,000 Jews were killed. Alexander Yanai followed that up by crucifying 800 of the sages of his day, 
because he considered them to be the leaders of the opposition. He probably would have nailed even more sages to the cross if they hadn't fled to Egypt and elsewhere. The problem with the Hasmoneans in general was not that they had reestablished the kingdom after they defeated the Seleucids, but that they sat on its throne. The right of kingship belongs solely to the house of David of the tribe of Judah. The Hasmoneans, however, descended from Aaron of the tribe of Levi, Aaron being Israel's first high priest and brother of Moses. Here's how Nachmanides, the Ramban, not the Rambam, the Ramban, put it in commenting on a verse from Jacob's blessing to his sons in Genesis. Noting that several Hasmonean leaders had died in combat, Nachmanides said they were being punished, quote, because of this, that they ruled, but they were not from the seed of Judah and the seed of the house of David. And it is also possible that their reign as kings was a sin for them because they were priests, Kohanim, and they should not have reigned but rather just serve the sacred service of the Lord, unquote. The Jerusalem Talmud puts it more succinctly, quote, we do not anoint priests as kings, unquote. That Hanukkah is also a victory over Hellenization is yet another myth. Greek influence was everywhere, as the names parents gave their children demonstrated, including some of the names the Hasmoneans gave to their children, and even some of the names of our sages. Jewish ritual was influenced by the Greeks as well. The Yisker service apparently is another popular outgrowth of the Hasmonean victory. The Tanakh knows nothing of Yisker. Early on, many of the sages and rabbis who came after them actually opposed the memorial service as antithetical to Judaism. They were right about that, by the way, but that's for another podcast. The Book of Second Maccabees reports that a memorial service was held for the fallen soldiers and the idea of annual memorial services generally soon caught on with the people. The Hasmoneans seem to have borrowed the idea from the Hellenizing Greeks. Then there's this. Under the leadership of the Hasmonean ruler John Hyrcanus, for the first and only time in Jewish history, and in total violation of Jewish law, a victorious Jewish army forced an alien population, in this case the Idumeans, to convert or be expelled from their own land. That it was the Hasmonean who secretly opened the gates of Jerusalem to an advancing Roman army, thus turning Judea into a Roman province, also didn't help matters much. This is not the stuff of Jewish holidays. And it all represented something the sages were not prepared to accept especially in the wake of the fall of the temple in the year 70. And yet, they must have felt powerless to eliminate the Festival of Lights, which had become popular by then, as Josephus noted. To mitigate this, a popular legend was eventually adopted regarding that small vial of long-lasting oil. As noted earlier, there's nothing in either Book of Maccabees or anywhere else in non-Rabbinic texts to support that legend. Of all the reasons just cited, most relevant to us today in the face of the Hanukkah is the Jewish Christmas conundrum, is the tendency of the Hasmonean heroes to borrow from their very Hellenistic culture whose defeat Hanukkah is supposed to symbolize. Of all the reasons just cited, most relevant to us today in the face of the Hanukkah is the Jewish Christmas conundrum, is the tendency of the Hasmonean heroes to borrow from the very Hellenistic culture whose defeat Hanukkah is supposed to symbolize. Emulating the other is an outright violation of Jewish law. 
starting with the Torah. The reason, according to Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 30, is the fear of our being lured into their ways, as the Torah puts it, meaning we might be attracted to their religious practices and abandon our own, as, for example, King Solomon was, at least in his later years. Torah law led to a class of rules and regulations usually referred to as chukat hagoyim, or laws and customs of the nations, meaning every nation but our own. For the record, goyim was never meant to be a pejorative. The word goy simply means nation. Even we are called a goy. The Talmud prefers the term darche ha'emori, the way of the Amorites, in which the Amorites stand in for all the pagan nations and their pantheons of no-gods. Banned by Jewish law are any chukata goyim, or darche ha'emori, that are idolatrous in nature or are based on superstition, if that superstition itself is rooted in pagan belief. While neither Christianity nor Islam are considered pagan religions, Chukata Goyim restrictions were extended to them over time because of their efforts, at times very violent efforts, to get us to convert to their way of worshiping God. The choice often given to us was convert or die. Of course, if a law or custom has nothing to do with religious ritual or worship, then most authorities, not all, have no problem with our mimicking the behavior. The same holds true for superstitions that have no religious underpinnings. On the one hand, we have Hanukkah, a minor Jewish festival to be celebrated in the home that involves only one ritual, the lighting of an eight-branched menorah, or Hanukkah, preferably in front of one's door, or at least in a window that can be seen by the neighbors. On the other hand, we have one of Christianity's two major observances, this one involving the birth of Christianity's titular founder. There's simply no comparison in terms of significance. Among the traditions of Christmas is hanging wreaths on doors and in windows. Many Jews now hang cutouts of Hanukkiot in their windows, and there even are so-called Hanukkah wreaths. Amazon has two for sale for $112 each. Then there's decorating homes with all kinds of things, including strings of letters that spell Merry Christmas. Many Jews now decorate their homes with cutouts of dreidels and strings of letters that spell out Happy Hanukkah. And Christmas lights for which we now have Hanukkah lights, usually strung in a Star of David pattern. Amazon sells a string of Hanukkah lights that wrap around a tree trunk. And there are the public Christmas displays, for which we now have public Hanukkiot and their attendant displays as well. Christmas is a religious holiday, although it's easy to miss that amid all the commercialism surrounding its observance. And the customs and traditions of Christmas are meant to enhance its sacred nature. That makes those customs religious customs and traditions, and therefore covered by the Chukat Goyim prohibition. Emulating those customs violates Jewish law. Yet, even in some of the most observant homes, those customs are emulated. In the specific case of the Christmas lights, one of the three possibilities is the likeliest for the origin of the custom. One, as mentioned earlier, decorating homes with candles and greenery were features of the very pagan winter solstice festival that later morphed into 
Christmas, and so is carried along into Christmas. Two, the lights are meant to memorialize the Star of Bethlehem that supposedly foretold the event celebrated at Christmas. And three, Santa needs the lights to find the houses on his gift-giving journey. Celebrating Hanukkah this way, then, clearly violates the principle of Chukat Goyim. Despite its problematic origins, and because of the ability of the sages to adapt, Hanukkah now has a Jewishly religious purpose. It stands for the triumph of faith in God over the forces of paganism, with God, not the Hasmoneans, as the ultimate author of the religious victory, not the military one. The legend of the vial of long-lasting oil becomes the symbol of God's authorship of that victory. In a very real sense as well, Hanukkah celebrates the concept of freedom of religion. Had the revolt led by the Hasmoneans failed, there likely would be no Jews today, which means there also would be no Christians or Muslims. There could never have been a Christmas if there hadn't first been a Hanukkah. Let's keep Hanukkah a Jewish festival by observing it as law and tradition has taught us to observe it, rather than turning it into something else, and may its promise of ultimate redemption be fulfilled speedily and in our days. This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmeyer. You may think of me as the Grinch who stole Hanukkah, but I hope you come back for my next podcast, and I'd like to hear what you have to say about this or my other podcasts. Go to www.shamai.org, 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 and email me, please. Stay healthy and stay safe, and come next Thursday at sundown. Light the first light of the Festival of Lights and keep doing it for the seven days that follow. Chag Urim Sameach. A happy Hanukkah to all and to all. A Shabbat Shalom.